1: Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I am your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams, and I'm so happy that you made it to class this morning. So gas is at a very disrespectful rate. It's just disrespectful. The housing market is still crazy, and inflation is hitting us all in the pocket. I mean, have you seen the price of chicken wings? Have you been to the grocery store to buy chicken wings? It's insane. And while all of these economic issues are affecting all of us. I can only imagine how it's impacting people living at the poverty line and below. As our beloved June Moses says, it's expensive being poor. And I read something recently from the Bricklands Institute. For many households across the world, rising inflation poses a significant challenge. Higher prices can erode the value of real wages and savings, leaving households poor. But these effects are not felt equally low and middle income households tend to be more vulnerable to high inflation than wealthier neighborhoods makes sense that reflects the composition of their income their assets consumption baskets I don't know if many of you remember economics or it was a class that we took I want to say in high school or in freshman year of college for those of us and, and, and we had these like baskets and you had to put things in it and I, it, I always failed because I didn't understand what was supposed to be in the basket and why your basket had to be the same as mine. Anyway, I digress. Inflation may affect the very poorest households living below the global poverty line less directly. That's because the poorest households, this is the most important thing that I read from this piece. The poorest households have minimal wage incomes or assets and tend to rely on non-monetary income, such as subsistence farming or bartering, which are less vulnerable to inflation. They basically find different ways to supplement their income, to be able to get all the debt that they need. But there's more. Poor households often lack access to financial products that can protect them against inflation because these products can have upfront or ongoing costs and therefore be unaffordable. High inflation, in short, tends to worsen inequality or poverty Because it hits income and savings harder for poor or middle income households than for wealthy households. Households that have recently escaped poverty could be pushed back into it by rising inflation. And I'm sure, you know, there are tons of things being written about how inflation is impacting the middle class, how it's impacting the economy, you know, but, I, you know, I wanted to, and those of us who are working class, middle class, higher middle class, however you want to cl- uh, classify yourselves, you know, we're complaining about the prices of things. We are have the ability to pull back. Some of us may own homes or be, quote, safe, have a a a job and have wealth built into your house or being able to live with someone or live with parents or things of that nature. But as you see all across the country what else is also rising? Homelessness is rising. There are more people who are housing insecure meaning that they don't have a roof over their head or a home of their own or have the ability to pay for the apartment the house or the place they are in right now and they are suffering. So I wanted to bring one someone to the front of the class to discuss all of this with, but specifically to discuss how low income and underbanked communities, and we'll talk about what underbanked means when we have our guests on, that communities like that are often targeted to extract the already low wealth that they have for their families, right? And there are local, state, and federal policies that actually allow for this targeted wealth extracting to happen. There are actual laws on the books that allow these types of financial products and stores and things of that nature to still exist. I'm talking about check cash in places with high interest, right? So, you know, yeah, you may be able to get access to your money immediately to cash your check, however, you are giving up a significant more of your money in order to do that. And you know, I talk with my guests about how waiting for your money could also be a problem for those who are underbanked or in those communities. I'm talking about rent center like places, right? Where you are renting furniture or renting technology or things like that. It allows you to be able to afford it, but you're also paying extreme amount of fees and high interest. And we talk about some of the solutions that we should put in place on the local, state and federal level to curb these financial products that are and, and I'm being as honest as can be that are specifically targeting communities, right? Because they say, and this is the same thing as Dollar Tree or any of those sort of discount places. Notice ain't no Dollar Tree on Fifth Avenue, right? They're specifically targeting certain communities and and extracting or saying that because you know the financial situation is what it is for this particular community, this is the best place to put a Dollar Tree. This is the best place to put a check cash in place. And if you also notice that when you are in those communities, Check cash in places, there's one on every block, right? And there may be banks that exist in that community, but there may be just one. (laughs) And so having greater real estate, right, also contributes to that predatory nature. So we're going to discuss all of this and how we can address these issues with our guest, the CEO of Hope, Mr. Bill Bynum. He'll join us right after this break (laughs) for us to talk in depth about these issues and Particularly in the cities and in the communities that Hope is investing in, including Memphis. And they just did a report about how these predatory institutions are specifically targeting communities and the effect it has on those communities in order to build wealth and to get out of poverty. So we'll talk more about that when we come back here on Sunday Civics.
0: The wahala, all the problems all the things that you think that you must do
1: to start in this world like when the t-shirt school boy and schoolgirl come
0: together who is the t-shirt i go let you know
1: Who is the welcome teacher? back to sunday civics the home for the civically engaged i am your host eljoy williams and i am delighted, if you will, not delighted about the topic, but delighted about the guests that we have at the front of the class this morning. Joining us is the CEO of HOPE, H-O-P-E. His name is Bill Bynum. And if you're not familiar, HOPE is actually a family of organizations that provide financial services, uses private and public resources, engages in advocacy, and basically acts like a catalyst to mitigate the extent to which factors such as race, gender, birthplace, and wealth limit one's ability to prosper. So joining us for a discussion about a number of things is the CEO of Hope, Bill Bynum. Thanks so much for joining us.
0: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you today.
1: Thank you, thank you. So since you're at the front of the class for the first time, I wanna start where we start with every guest. If you could share the story for us of your first civic action.
0: Sure, before that, I just wanna commend you. You probably did one of the best jobs of describing hope of anyone I've ever um, engaged. It is, we can be somewhat complicated and I really appreciate how you you shared uh, your view of our organization. You know, for me, I, I was always involved in think um, student uh, government in some way. Uh, found myself at the front of the line advocating on behalf of uh, people who were being mistreated. And that continued when I was in college. And I found myself as the chairman of the black student movement. It was the black student government association at the university of north carolina where i attended college and my first day in office uh, we marched on the administration building in in, and there was a trustee meeting going on and we marched because a incredible professor of african-american studies had been denied tenure even though she had met all the criteria that um were supposed to uh, be met in order to secure a tenure. She was published. She had high marks as an edu- as a as, as a as a lecturer and as a teacher. And um, we felt that she was being um, discriminated against. And so we shared that perspective with the administration. And next thing I knew, we had TV cameras in front of us. And and the chancellor said that we had no recourse. And that's probably one of the uh, last things you want to tell a bunch of ride, riled up, you know, 18, 19, 20 year olds, and so uh, we really um, were passionate about this issue, and and eventually we um, were successful in getting the only tenure decision ever um, overturned at what was what is the nation's oldest public university. So uh, there's, today there's a building in her honor uh, on campus, and so really. Um, was excited to be able to come together and, and and make a difference.
1: You know, there are a number of people who share that action about whether it's in high school or going to college. and being educated about their rights, given voice, right? is usually when you go to college it's the first time you as an ad- you know you feel like an adult and you can make decisions on your on your own, but also feel empowered through education, to speak up, as you mentioned. And so those are great opportunities and the reasons why we share those stories. So I want to get into why you're on the show today. And recently, the Policy Institute, Hope Policy Institute, and the Black Clergy Collaborative of Memphis released a report that details how different entities, exploitive entities, target communities of color, target back communities, and create what are called like debt traps <laughs> and make money. They make millions of dollars off of communities, and it actually widens the wealth gap. Yeah. Talk to us a bit about this report, specifically how it pertains or is concentrated in Memphis. And we know these are things that are replicated across the country and not just into a special case of Memphis, but talk a bit about the report and and what it details.
0: Sure. And you you were so right to anchor it in the wealth gap. When you look at black and white households across the country, um, it's pretty commonly acknowledged that there is a significant gap between the, what black households own versus what they owe compared to are our white peers, uh, roughly 10 to 12 to 1 um, in terms of the black-white wealth gap. Amazingly, it's 100 to 1 for black households with children compared to white households with children. That is not sustainable, particularly as the country becomes more diverse. Uh, Here in the Deep South, um, most children, most people below age 18 are non-white. And so we are not a minority. We're an emerging majority of the United States. And so it's in no one's interest to leave the majority of the population ill-prepared to contribute to their economy and support their families. You know, quite honestly, that's what Dr. King was uh, advocating for when he was in Memphis, uh, that we broaden the civil rights movement to focus on economic justice and economic opportunity and equip people to support their uh, families, and so in Memphis, that is as true as it is anywhere. Nearly half of all Black Memphis households are either uh, either do not have a banking account, they're unbanked, or they're underbanked, meaning that they rely on these high-cost uh, alternative lenders, payday lenders, check cashers, pawn shops, cash for title lenders. Um, that charge exorbitant rates. Rates, that quite honestly should be criminal uh, and they target uh, communities of color um, uh, disproportionately. As I remember, mentioned, nearly half of all black house in Memphis are unbanked or underbanked uh, compared to less than 17% of white households. So again, that is a major contributor to the wealth gap because if you have to pay more for basic needs when you need have an emergency, you know, and it extends to not just payday lending. that's where it is most um, most predatory, but subprime mortgage loans, um, you know, auto loans um, that, that when you have less, you have to pay more. And so that is why this uh, focus on predatory lending was so important. It makes residents of Memphis the targets of these lenders. And, and these lending products often share a common theme. Trapping people in loans with over triple digit interest rates, reaching as high as 300 to 400%. You think about it a credit card, you shouldn't have to pay more than 20, 18%. Um, but these high triple digit rates, unaffordable, uh, put people into severe harm. The consequences are, are just remarkable. People lose their bank accounts, their cars, they pay hundreds of dollars in fees over and over again. And the cost of that falls on these families, as well as charities, churches and others holding the bag to try to help people um, get out of these conditions.
1: You know, I want to pull out some of the things that you mentioned. One of the things my assistant always says is it's expensive to be poor in the amount of things, as you mentioned, fees that you have to pay in order to basically live your daily life, like people underestimate how much that costs. Let me pull out some of the things from the report really quickly. In Memphis, you said the report says there are 114 mm-hmm. high-cost lending storefronts, which is t- more than twice the number of fast food joints <laughs> like McDonald's and Subways and Starbucks combined in that area, and they're own, they're owned by only 21 lending companies. Right? Again target (laughs) from, from that standpoint. And it also says just Two out of state corporations own nearly half of all of the high cost lending stores in Memphis. I want to pull out a little bit in the conversation where you're talking about payday lenders, others, some people may not be familiar with this process and just putting into context for people. When you go use a check cashing place or, you know, I need money before my payday, which is a week from now, whatever. You know, talk a bit about what what makes them predatory or what the fees are that people are paying.
0: Sure. And as payday lenders, as car title loans, flex loans, you know, they have many share characteristics that, again, have devastating consequences there at the triple digit interest rates, the unaffordable terms coercive, um, abusive repayment mechanisms, like the ability to seize money from one's bank account or, or, or seize their car. You know, they're often marketed as a quick fix, but the reality is that they are a debt trap by design. Um, they create just a cascade of, of, of conditions such as increased likelihood of overdraft fees. Um, again, people lose their car, they default on other bills, and their bank accounts are closed and even can drive them into bankruptcy. And this, this is even before you get to the emotional psychological stress that's caused by this debt burden and ability to build wealth for the future. Um, they are disproportionately concentrated in communities of color. Um, and the, any, um, uh, again, the, the, is you mentioned the, the fees flow to really just a small hand full of companies that control these markets and many of them are out of state. So they are not as subject to local governance and policy and rules. And, and so it is, um, it is really a, 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 a terrible set of conditions that disproportionately harm communities of color.
1: So I, I, I want to go to, I've been in this situation before, right? Before being, <laughs> right? You've been, in, I've been in, as a young college student as um, starting out my career when you're making, you know, you know, $18,000 a year, $20,000 a year or others, and you're working minimum wage or barely minimum, barely minimum wage, and you need access to, your money quickly. You know, you need, as you mentioned, being underbanked is not having a bank account or not having, you may have a bank account, but your, you know, it takes three days for your check to clear or things of that nature, right? Particularly if you have a lower credit rating. So for, as you mentioned, for a lot of these entities, they say like, look, we're providing a convenience, right? For people to be able to access their money quickly. And it's like, okay, I need to cash this check for $200, $300. It's going to cost me $60 (laughs) to do it, but I need that $100 because Because my family has to eat my right. Like, how do you address from a policy perspective, right? From a government perspective, what needs to be in place to address that very real situation of people needing access to their money because they have a real immediate concern?
0: No, it it is. You're absolutely right. And you've seen the conditions I've seen in my family and friends and neighbors who've been in that same position. Interestingly, there was a study a while back that uh, showed that even high income uh, people of color, middle and upper income people of color, um, are more likely to use these alternative uh, high cost outlets than to go to a bank. Hopefully, that is changing. But um, it is a fact that people of color Historically, have not been as well served by traditional financial institutions. There are several institutions, traditional banks, in Memphis that have been um, um, slapped on the wrist by regulators, by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau um, and the Justice Department, even for redlining, um, which you know was outlawed, um, but still they uh, they get away and they try to target certain communities and and leave behind other uh and, and leave behind communities of color in terms of access to traditional financial services and so what that leaves is a wild wild west kind of situation for these payday lenders and check cashes and, and alternatives um to go in and allegedly fill the gap and provide what they market as a a helping hand to those who are most vulnerable. But there's a difference between providing people with a short-term loan to address the need and having a business model that is predicated on abusing um, the recipient of those funds. If you go in and you get a payday loan, the the idea is this is a payday loan. You get it for a payday, and you um, and, and, and you get it for a short term, and then it's repaid uh, out of your paycheck um, in a short time. But the reality is that the average payday loan rolls over ten times, um, and so what is a two hundred fifty dollar loan ends up being a twenty five hundred three thousand dollar debt trap that you cannot get out of, you know, we see this every day at Hope, um, credit union where people come into our branch and their credit has been obliterated because of these payday lending, um, situations. And now you owe something that you, you know, and the the lender goes on the front end knows that while you may be able to afford to repay a, a, a $60 fee in a short time they make it hard for you to repay these loans and now you owe you know 2500 three thousand dollars that you know you you barely make that you know in over the course of several months and so it is it is not designed to really be a service but to extract wealth and profits from these communities Um, but it's marketed as a service Well, one of you know there 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 there's policies that should be in place. There's there's accountability from traditional financial institutions to make more affordable, responsible services available. That are a part of the um, are some of the solutions that should be put in place. But the first thing is to, to stop the harm.
1: Right. So in talking about that, stopping the harm, let's say, you know, from a policy regulation or something, it's like these practices can no longer exist. There will still be the need for some people in the community, right? Because people are underbanked. And I think about here in Brooklyn, the Carver Bank started adopting some of the services that people would get at a Check cash in place, right? Your ability to, you know, cash a check, you know, do it quickly, all of those kind of services or or small loans, micro loans. But they're not, it's not like a carver bank is on every other block the same way a check cash in place is, right? Like in terms of being able to like you can drive a mile right? And probably find a couple of check cash in places before you would get to a bank branch, right? Like a standalone bank branch, or even a credit union, because there are also credit unions that have opened up as, you know, hope has a credit union to try to address this, try to transition people from being underbanked, from relying on these financial products, these predatory financial products to something that is less expensive, less less predatory. How do we transition that if tomorrow... Right, like by the stroke of a pen or a state legislature, these are outlawed. There will still be the need, and people are in that predicament. What do we rapidly need to do to address that?
0: No, well, for, first and foremost, I think it's important to dispel the notion that people should be subjected to these 400 percent loans. Anything is better than 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 uh, than a uh, a locking people into a debt trap um you know the consequences again are are insurmountable um if someone's facing a financial emergency there are places they can go to help either for direct assistance with what they're facing or affordable loan options at other lenders as the cover banks you know there are um financial institutions increasingly that are, that are anchored in communities of color, owned by people of color that offer affordable, responsible lending. Again, anything is better than, uh, any option is better than a 400% interest rate that will sink people into further debt. Um, there's a, um, there are laws on the books um, the, that several organizations, including HOPE are advocating be strengthened. Community Reinvestment Act um, is is being considered. That is a law that requires that banks uh, reinvest in communities from which they extract profits. And they certainly, uh, uh, whether they have a branch in a black community or not, they are generating revenue and should be obligated to reinvest in those communities. Uh, No, but I'm not going to suggest that it is a it's a simple solution. The reality is that these gaps, opportunity gaps, have existed for a long time um, by design, but now that we know the, and the data are clear about the disproportionate impact that it has on communities of color, it's, 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 it's critical that we advocate for protections and alternatives that provide people with the tools they need to support their families.
1: Absolutely. So moving to talking about the racial wealth gap, because that's another term that we see circulating in media, talking about the very real gap that exists in terms of wealth in this country. And, you know, I I always try to make people stop and think, that there are people who actively made decisions, there are actual policies that actually contribute to creating this gap, right? It's not something that just magically happens and it's just like, oh, we just have less, right? Like there are active <laughs> there are active policies on the books and institutions that actually create this gap. And one of which we just talked about, which is these predatory targeted financial implements that sort of target our communities and extract wealth from our communities. Can you talk a bit more about how hope is trying to dismantle either through policy advocacy and, and other means to address closing the wealth gap.
0: Sure. We started back in the mid nineties as a loan fund to um, and, and an organization to try to help businesses in the Delta region of Mississippi, Arkansas, Louisiana, um, get access to tools they need to grow, stabilize and uh, offer jobs to pay good wages and good benefits. Again, the um, this is um, this region is one of the um, most historically um, um, impoverished, has a long history of racial challenges. And so we found, though, that it was very uh, when you got people the tools when which. Eventually, you know financing is a critical tool. It's one of many, but uh, it, whether whether it's jobs, healthcare education, you guys, at some point you need financial tools. And so we were able to successfully provide those tools and um, to, and and we needed to scale up. And so we have um, grown over the years from that one and a half million dollar loan fund to uh, today we are one of the largest, Uh, black-owned, women-owned financial institutions in the country, but we still are targeting those communities that are disproportionately on the outside of the financial system uh, looking in. Interestingly, if you look back over the course of history in this country and you look at a map of where slavery was most concentrated on the eve of the Civil War, you overlay that with a map today where you have the worse education outcomes, health outcomes, housing, um, jobs, and employment conditions, it is very similar to that map if you looked at where slaveholding was concentrated prior to the Civil War. And I don't think it's a coincidence. It is also where you have the highest concentrations of people of color and where you have the least bank branches and the most payday lenders and predatory lenders. And so what HOPE does is to try to, in addition to, provide financial tools, which eventually, again, if it's healthcare, education, jobs, anything that's needed to climb the economic ladder, at some point you need financial resources. And so we try tried to drive financial resources into these areas. But knowing that even though we are one of the largest Black and women-owned financial institutions in the country, we are small relative to the need and relative to mainstream institutions, So we take data from the uh, experiences um, that we have in the communities we serve, the stories from people that we are able to make a mortgage loan to, a small business loan to get out of a debt trap, and we take that data to policymakers. We take it to banks and show them, here are ways that you can close these gaps and equip what is, again, becoming an emerging majority of the population with the tools they need to succeed and contribute to the economy. And so we, again, in addition to the direct services that we provide, we advocate and take their stories. We try to amplify their voices in halls of Congress, um, in state legislator, uh, state legislatures um, with major corporations. Um, We also really been excited about our ability to import capital into these capital deserts. Um, you, know, you don't know if you've um, uh, ever heard of Mississippi Valley State University. It's, it's in Itabina, Mississippi, and it, is, it, it sounds, it's a place that is like it sounds, itty bitty, and it means home in the woods, but it is a, a place where it uh, provides educational services for Delta residents and help them climb the economic ladder. We took over a closed bank branch um, in, the, in the aftermath of the financial crisis. Uh, if you look at where bank branches closed after the 2007-2008 financial crisis, 93% of all bank branches that closed were in low-income census tracts, which are disproportionately communities of color. And so, in this town, we we took over and converted that branch to a uh, the bank branch to a Branch of Hope Credit Union, and we now have more than half of all deposits in that community, but that amounts to roughly 1.2 million dollars if we had all of the deposits. And so that's hardly enough to provide the support for home ownership, for business development, for critical community facilities, education, healthcare, and, and because of the wealth gap. These people do not have the wealth to generate deposits that you find in more affluent communities. And so what we've done over the past uh, couple of years, and it was really um, um, catalyzed after the death of George Floyd, it's unfortunate that it took that tragic event to get so many people to pay attention to the systemic discrimination in this country and the structural barriers to helping people to uh, contribute to the economy. And we were able to uh, get, um deposits that um we call transformational deposits that are priced similar to uh, the low cost no cost checking and saving accounts that are easy to get in wealthy neighborhoods but don't exist in poor places like itabena netflix was one of the first companies that stepped up and made a 10 million dollar deposit in Hope Credit Union. And that will support a lot of mortgages, a lot of small businesses in places like Itabina and towns like that across the uh, Delta and, Ala- and, the, and the, uh, Arcan- the Alabama Black Belt and inner city Memphis. That was followed by PayPal, by Dick's Sporting Goods, by Nike, by large corporations, by individuals who are willing to forego a few interest uh, points in interest rate return in order to drive capital into capital-star places.
1: Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more on Sunday Civics. How can it? Welcome back to Sunday Civics. So this time last year, you testified before the United States Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs, and was specifically highlighting all that HOPE's family suites of organizations <laughs> and institutions do, as you were talking about. The other thing I wanted to bring as sort of an educational piece is people talk about this acronym, CDFIs which are community development financial institutions. Can you talk a bit about what CDFIs are supposed to do? And then what are, you know, if you live in communities that have CDFIs and a lot of them, you know, a lot of us do, what should we be looking to them and sort of what should they be investing in in particular communities like rural communities like you mentioned and you know mississippi and alabama but also in places up north right like that are targeted communities
0: of color no sure um, cdfis are you know there are a range of different types of of financial service providers they can be credit unions they can be banks they can be nonprofit loan funds they can be venture capital funds can be housing um financing organizations. Um, you know, they they can be specialized and do micro business loans, um, but they 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 are uh, designed to drive financials tools into financially underserved places. They were uh established um followed by um by President Clinton, um actually one of his campaign um Platform um, uh, priorities was to create a agency in the United States government that supported, uh, the, uh, you know, establishment of a hundred development banks and a thousand development micro loan funds, um, somewhat modeled after the Grameen Bank, which was um, um, developed by Professor Muhammad Yunus in Bangladesh. He won a Nobel Prize a few years ago for that. Work, but um, since then, uh, they was the President Clinton was successful in establishing an agency in Treasury that provides support to these CDFIs to help them get capital to go into these communities. Uh, the sixty uh, percent of the financial services provided by CDFIs should go to underserved, economically uh, underserved people and places, um, and so that's what they do. That's what the Hope was one of the first. CDFIs um, certified by by Treasury. There's now over 1,300 CDFIs across the country. Many of them are in cities. Uh, they're in rural areas. Uh, some are national, some are very uber-local. But they are uh, increasingly a critical part of the financial continuum in this country um, and step into the breach when traditional financial institutions do not do their work. Uh, We've seen how important that is over the past um, uh, 22 years um, following the, um, during the pandemic, when you saw so many small businesses, um, so many families that were devastated by the economic consequences of the uh, pandemic. Um, Hope, for example, in a normal year, we make 50 small business loans in the twenty and over the course of a year and a half, we made fifty-two hundred paycheck protection loans. Uh, many of those to sole proprietorships. Sole proprietorships. Ninety-six uh, percent of all black businesses are sole proprietorships. Small mom and pop businesses that provide critical services in our communities: barbershops, hairdressers, beauty salons, restaurants, lawn care services. But initially, they were not eligible to get paycheck protection loans, which were uh, forgivable loans that help businesses uh, navigate the pandemic. If you recall, uh, of this $800 billion program, uh, the original initial round went through traditional banks and... Um, The results were what we have often seen Um, when you look at traditional bank lending, the people who were able to get into that program uh, and use almost all of the first round of funds were the large companies that were the priority customers of traditional banks. And that left so many black and brown businesses, so many sole proprietorship, mom and pop uh, employers, uh, on the outside. Um, and as a result, you know, you saw more than 40% of all black businesses close their doors, um, in the early months of the, uh, economic crisis. And so it's, uh, CDFIs stepped in, advocated for Congress, to Congress, and I so much appreciate, um, many members of, of Congress, including, um, Senator Booker, um, Con- I mean, Congressman Thompson from here in Mississippi, Uh, Chairman Maxine Waters, um, Senator um, uh, Warner from Virginia, and Vice President Harris, then Senator Harris, were at the front of the line advocating for expanding the program and making it available to CDFIs and opening the door to sole proprietorships. And we were successful in making that happen. Um, As a matter of fact, um, CDFIs... Um, have increasingly been recognized and are recognized by the banking industry as a critical part of the financial system, filling the gaps that for many reasons, traditional banks do not fill.
1: So, you know, one of the things I've been talking to a number of folks about, you mentioned coming out of the pandemic pandemic we obviously have healthcare infrastructure that needs to be rebuilt and also targeted to make sure that if we approach a situation like this in the future or other emergency nationwide health issues, that we need to have infrastructure in local communities to be able to deal with that. But there's also the economic infrastructure that is as mentioned, just very thin and weak and sort of really only benefits people who have access to education, access to cash (laughs) in order to build and create wealth for not only their immediate families, their future generations but then overall the community at large right like how you benefit and and financially lift up a community at large and create wealthy communities of color right i one i think it's not hard because there are communities you can point to that literally sometimes are adjacent zip codes and you can say well what makes that community safe and wealthy you know and whole well they have as you mentioned in your testimony they have, quote, good schools. They have, you know, the financial resources. They have home ownership, but also available, various available housing options, right? So, you know, part of me feels like this ain't hard. We know what it takes <laughs> to build safe and wealthy communities. And it's, you know, a little, I guess, discouraging. Just like The only difference between some of these zip codes is Black. like like really that's the only like the only difference in that am I is there a nicer way to say that
0: (laughs) no it's important to be real and and I think you are being uh, very accurate and real in describing that often that is the distinguishing factor in whether someone has access to opportunity and one, uh, and and if they don't, it is the color of skin, sometimes it's gender, um, sometimes it's who their parents are, but uh, it is uh, is not rocket science. It it is, we know how to lift these communities up. Again, I I mentioned Dr. King, you know, he made the point that um, if a financial institution is not serving your needs, then Don't put your money there. Um, It's accountability. Don't give people your vote. Um, Don't not, you know, we cannot uh, abandon vote and assume that it doesn't matter um, who you vote for. You need to put people in office um, that act in your best interest. I think it's so appropriate that we're talking about civics here. Um, and, And we cannot abandon our. Obligation to hold our policymakers, those who control our resources, accountable, and those are those are policymakers, those are banks. They get access to federal insurance, taxpayer-supported insurance, and so we have to go to our uh, members of Congress, to our state legislators, to our local government office holders, and let them know what it is that we need to uplift our communities. Um, uh, As as you mentioned, our family of organizations includes a policy arm, and as I shared, we take data from our communities and we um, use it to try to amplify the voices of the people we serve who don't have as direct access to uh, members of Congress and legislators. But we do have access to our votes. We have access to, them through going to (coughs) school board meetings, to local city councils, town boards, county commissioners, and letting them know. And the data has shown that when you own, again, back to the wealth gap, uh, when you own a home, when you have a bank account, um, when you are a business owner, you're more likely to be um, civically engaged. You're more likely to go to those meetings and hold people accountable, you know? And so I think that is another reason why it's so critical that we, um, that we stop these predatory lending practices, that we open up the banking system so that more people can participate. I, I don't think, again, you I mentioned the map of where slaveholding was concentrated um, and today where you have the highest incidence of economic exclusion. Um, I don't think it's uh, it's an accident that the differences that you see on one side of the track versus the other. Uh, But it's up to us to recognize that. I think the data, the conversations that we're having here are a part of what's needed to make people aware so that we take control of our own conditions. You know, we can't wait for someone else to um, open the door for us to walk through. We've got to open the door ourselves. And, and data, information is, is critically important to letting people know that these conditions exist and what has to be done to address them.
1: Yeah. Well, I want to thank you so very much for taking an opportunity to share all of this with us. And thank you for coming to the front of the class to educate folks about what's happening, about what we should be demanding. Um, what we should be talking to our elected officials about. And it's another opportunity, uh, another question that you can take to those who represent you about how they are addressing or what policies they are supporting in their local communities, whether it's on a state level, a local level, or on a federal level, to make sure to address these issues. So thank you so very much. I hope to have more folks from Hope back as we talk further about this, but thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: And thanks to all of you for making it to class this Sunday. We'll be back next Sunday with more of Sunday Civics, those civics lessons you need to take civic action. Have a great one.